0: Well, it has been wonderful to sing praises to our Lord and Savior this morning. We turn to God's word now, and because we are beginning this new year, I have the privilege of introducing our church theme for 2023, and if you have been with us for the last six or so years, you know that each year we focus the special events of our ministries, our summer sermon series, our books of the month, and so on, We focus those around a particular topic and a particular theme. Why, because we are seeking to grow and mature as followers of Christ. It is because of our mission statement that we do this. It's because of our mission statement. This is what it is. EBC exists to grow, mature, and send disciples of Jesus for the glory of our Savior. That's why we exist. That's our purpose statement as a church. To grow, mature, and send Disciples of Christ for the glory of our Savior. And we get that from Colossians chapter one. It's written above me, Colossians chapter one. We proclaim him, we exalt Christ. That's what we do, that's our purpose. We exalt Christ. There are many things we could preach from this pulpit. There are many movements we could be involved in. There are many topics we could discuss. But we stay focused on one thing. That is the word of Christ. That's the gospel of our Savior. Why? Here's why. So that we, the leadership of EBC, so that we may present every man, each and every one of you, complete, fully matured in Christ. That is the desire, that is the prayer each elder and staff member and ministry leader has for you, your sanctification, your spiritual growth, your Christ-likeness. And one way we seek to accomplish this goal is by collaborating together as elders and then later as staff and prayerfully considering where we are as a church and what areas the Lord would have us grow. And in focusing our efforts and planning our goals around a particular area of spiritual life that we can grow in, and then planning that upcoming year around that theme, around that goal. So our theme for this upcoming year—it's not a new theme, but it's an expansion on last year's theme. Hopefully it will build on last year and strengthen it and further what has begun growing here at EBC. Last year's theme was growing a culture of discipleship. You know that well, growing a culture of discipleship. We were drawing off of Matthew 28 and Jesus' great commission. We've looked at Paul's example in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And we spent last year showing not only why personal discipleship is important, but also what a discipleship relationship looks like. We delved into how we entrust God's word to others. Hopefully we showed how to apply God's word, how to come alongside one another intentionally, selflessly, how to become an active part of the spiritual growth of our brothers and sisters in Christ here at this church. And it was a joy to look back by all accounts and because of God's grace, we have responded well to this call. We have put into practice what we have learned, a culture of discipleship is growing here at EBC. And so we wanna build on that success We wanna build on that commitment we have made. We wanna ingrain this discipleship culture even deeper. And so this year's theme is this, discipleship in community. Discipleship in community. This is the next step for growing a culture of discipleship. Let me begin by saying this. So often, especially in our individualized society, We can easily turn Christ's call to make disciples into an individual activity. In fact, we can even become satisfied with a one-on-one discipleship relationship. And and again, don't get me wrong, that's important, that's necessary, that's good. One-on-one discipleship, we focused on that. But if we are not careful, our one-on-one discipleship can easily lead into an individualized spirituality and actually regress our Christ-likeness. It can actually lead to a self-centered and proud heart, an exclusive and arrogant mindset, a lone ranger Christianity. One author has put it this way. A huge threat to healthy discipleship is isolation. Let's read it again. A huge threat to healthy discipleship is isolation. It's being that lone Christian. You don't need others. Or that rogue Christian who doesn't need the body of Christ. That believer who throughout the week withdraws from God's people. But this is not how the Christian grows to fullness, completeness in Christ. Because our sanctification has been designed by God to be a community effort, a community effort. Just listen to how the New Testament describes the believer. Here's the New Testament description of us. We are fellow members of the body. Which means this, we are not our own. We're fellow members of the body. We actually belong to one another. Believers are called beloved brethren. We're members of the same family. We're called fellow workers, fellow citizens, fellow heirs. And you can hear the community descriptions in each of those. It is true, we belong to Christ. We are united to Christ. But we also belong to each other. We are also united to one another. Sinclair Ferguson has put it this way. Christ wants to create a people, a community, not merely isolated individuals who believe in him. But in the words of another author, community is central to our identity as Christians. There is no biblical support for personal autonomous Christianity. Now he's gonna base that on theology, on God. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have eternally existed in relationship with one another as one God in three persons. God is a relational being who created us as relational beings so that we could image him. And so community is a part of our being. We're made in the image of the triune God. And thus being made more in the image of Christ means growing closer in our relationships with one another. We're relational, it's community. Quote one other author, he writes this. By becoming a Christian, I belong to God and I belong to my brothers and sisters. And I know you hear this and you're already feeling the strain, right? You wanna raise your hand and you wanna say, but Patrick, I'm busy with my own life, right? We're all thinking it. I'm busy. I don't have time for others. And yet the quote continues. My being in Christ means being in Christ with those who are in Christ. This is my identity. So let me ask you, is that your identity? This is our identity. If the church is the body of Christ, then we should not live as disembodied, community-less Christians. And yet if we're honest, living as a disembodied Christian throughout the week, living our own lives outside of the people of God, that is easy to do, isn't it? That is easy to do, especially given the busyness of our lives. Add to that the size of the church. Add to that living in a culture that prides individualism Add to that, we're still battling our our fallen desires to hide our sin and cover our failures and project an external self-righteousness to others. You bring those factors all together and you have the perfect storm, the perfect storm to isolate yourself from your brothers and sisters in Christ and to become that autonomous Christian With either no ties to your fellow believers at worst, or at best just superficial ties with one another. To be that believer who lives his Christian life on a secluded island. But the scriptures are clear there are great dangers for that kind of Christianity, there are great dangers. Let me give you a few of those. The first danger is this. The first danger is this where there is no Christian community, where there is no love for the brethren, when you pride your Lone Ranger spirituality, where there is no Christian community, no love for the brethren, there is no assurance of salvation. There's no assurance of salvation. This is one of the messages of 1 John. Listen to 1 John 3. John writes this, by this, the children of God, already community now, the family of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. And we would give a hearty amen, wouldn't we? That's right. Obedience is key. You read the Bible, apply the Bible, you live it. Amen, John. Love what you're saying. But then we have the next phrase, nor the one who does not what? Love his brother and the amen's not as hearty at that point. John, you don't understand my brothers and sisters in Christ. Love for God's people, according to John, love for God's people is on par with practicing righteousness. Put in the context of the book, these things I have written so that you may know that you have eternal life. Love for God's people, according to John, is the test of saving faith. It's the mark that you're actually in the family of God. Continue the passage, for this is the message which you have heard from the beginning What is this foundational message that we should love one another? It goes back to John 13. Love one another, not as Cain. And do not forget Cain offered worship to God. And do not forget that Cain brought sacrifice to God. And he claimed to know God. And he thought that God would accept him But what did Cain lack? A love for his who? His brother. That's the picture, which is why John then continues. We know that we have passed out of death into life. Our saving faith is made evident because we love the brethren. Cain's faith was loveless. The true believer's faith is loving. Which is why John then adds the warning He who does not love, context, the brethren, he who does not love the brethren abides in death. He goes the way of Cain. It's quite a warning. John Phillips puts it this way the badge of true discipleship is not the doctrinal statement to which we subscribe not in the types of hymns and music we prefer, not in the rituals we observe or the ordinances we cherish. No, it is in our love for all those who love the Lord. So where there is no love for the brethren, there is no assurance of salvation. And now let's bring it back theologically though. Why is that the case? Why is that so? Well, listen to 1 John 4. is because love is from who? Love's from God. Love's from God, and thus the one who does not love his fellow believers does not know God. He's never experienced God's love, saving love. For God is love. God's love is poured out on us, and we love then those in the family of God. Again, it's quite a warning. And we're going to look at that danger of Christian isolationism later this year. Not going to tell you the date. You'll never show up, but later this year. Second danger. Second danger the isolated Christian faces is the inability to live an obedient life. It's the inability to live an obedient life. Again, why do I say that? Because without being actively involved with fellow believers without opening our lives to one another in meaningful ways. I'm talking beyond the 45-second say hello on Sunday morning. It's beyond that. Without being a part of a uh, a Christian community, there is no way, there is no way to obey the one another command scattered throughout the New Testament. There's no way you can do it. A community-less Christian is a one Christian, not a one another Christian. And thus a community-less Christian is a disobedient Christian. Again, we'll look at that throughout this year. Third, third danger. The isolated Christian faces the impossible task of fulfilling his Great Commission calling. The isolated Christian faces the impossible task of fulfilling his Great Commission calling. The Great Commission, again, the call to make disciples in an evangelistic way, that's part of it. That is a community command. It's a community command. We see the community aspect in John 13, We've looked at this in the past. Again, we'll look at it later this year. John 13, what does Jesus say? By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. How? That's the Great Commission calling. Go and make disciples. Bring this gospel to the world. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. If you have a what? We know it. A love for not the world, but one another. And so maybe, maybe that could be why many of our individualistic evangelism efforts, maybe that's why they fail. Because we're not doing this as the community of Christ. The Great Commission requires a Christian community, a love for one another, a community care, a community care that is so evident. It is so evident even the world can see it. Fourth, fourth danger. Fourth danger the isolated Christian faces it's the danger of becoming puffed up and proud. Puffed up and proud. It's the principle of 1 Corinthians 8. Knowledge makes what? Knowledge makes arrogant. But what's the counter? But love edifies. Love edifies. To which Paul then gives examples for how this love will show itself in the Christian community. It's a love that lets personal preferences go. A love that sacrifices personal freedoms for others. A love that forgives and shows patience and grace. That is an impossible task if you are not connected in meaningful ways to God's people. Without a community of believers, yes, you might grow in knowledge, but it will be proud knowledge. And your rough edges will never be smoothed out. You'll never be given an opportunity to put off your own selfishness. Your pride will never be confronted in a word. Your discipleship, your sanctification will never flourish. J.T. English is right. He wrote the book Deep Discipleship. He puts it this way, in an era in which so much of our world is built around the autonomous self and self-determination. That is true. Everyone have a phone that they can do whatever they want to do on it. It's the autonomous self. The world is built on that. The church must testify to the importance of community for the Christian life. Community is indispensable to discipleship. So that is where we're going to focus our attention this upcoming year, confronting our fallen tendency to be that lone, proud, individualized believer. We all experience that temptation. And we will call each and every one of us to either begin or grow further and our engagement with, and love for, and commitment to one another here at EBC. We wanna grow as disciples, as the scriptures intend. And thus we must participate in discipleship in community. Discipleship in community. So I wanna begin the year with this theme, answering one question this morning. One question. If it is true, if it is true that we grow as disciples of Christ within the context of Christian community, if that is true, then what does a discipleship community look like? What do we need to be a part of, actively a part of, if we're going to become humble disciples of Jesus? Well, we're told in Acts chapter two, turn there, Acts chapter two, where we will look at verses 37 through 47, Acts chapter two, verses 37 through 47. I'm gonna read the text and set it in our minds. Starting in verse 37, now when they, and you can just stop there for a moment, give some context, these are the Passover pilgrims who are in Jerusalem when Christ was crucified Verse 23 tells us that some of them loved seeing Jesus hang on that cross, they loved it. When they heard this, it's Peter's proclamation of Christ, Christ crucified, his perfect life, sacrificial death, glorious resurrection, even his return and victory. When they heard this message, they were pierced to the heart, and Peter and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles' brethren, What shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. With many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day, there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, And breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. You can stop there. Here is the beginning of the Christian church. This is the beginning of Christ himself through his spirit, fulfilling his disciple-making great commission. And you can see the parables, uh, the parallels, the parallels. You have Christ giving the great commission and here it being fulfilled. In the great commission, Christ called his apostles to preach the gospel of repentance. Well, we see Peter doing that in verse 38, repent, be saved from this perverse generation. The Great Commission, Christ calls his apostles to baptize, an outward showing of what's taking place on the inside. That's what we see in verse 38, each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. The Great Commission, Christ calls his apostles to make disciples of all the nations. Well, this is what we see, verse 41, and... That day there were added 3,000 souls. Verse 47, the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who are being saved. Who are these people? Who's being added to the church? Look back to verse five. They're from a variety of nations. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. It's the Great Commission being fulfilled Verse nine, Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, and on the list goes. So the church is growing. The gospel's taking root. Disciples of Christ are being made. The great commission is being, at least in part, being Fulfilled. And yet note, note that that this growth does not happen in a vacuum. And it does not happen with isolated Christians. Christians just doing their own deal. What we find in between the gospel effects of verse 41, disciples being added, and verse 47, again, disciples being added, what we find in the midst of that is a discipleship community building the community the Lord uses to call unbelievers out of their sins into the glorious light of Christ. We begin to see the essential community for disciples to grow further into the image of their Savior. Here's the answer to the question, what kind of discipleship community do each of us need to be a part of? if we're going to become growing, faithful, persevering, evangelistic, obedient, loving disciples, well, we see four features of that essential discipleship community here, four features of the community we not only need to be a part of, but the community we each need to foster here at EBC. Let's look at these, four of them, We'll draw application as we go. Start with feature number one. Feature number one, a discipleship community finds its unity primarily in the gospel of Jesus. So a gospel, a discipleship community finds its unity primarily in the gospel of Jesus. What is striking in Acts 2 is, is the nature of the people God brings together through his gospel. What we see in Acts 2 is that the community God builds is not based upon any earthly bond. The community God builds is a supernatural unity that only comes through the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 38, the end of verse 38. Here's Peter's promise to all who repent of their sins and turn to Christ in salvation. Here's the promise, promise. You will be granted forgiveness of sins. And then this, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit who unites the people of God. Ephesians 1, the Spirit is the bond of peace. Spirit's the bond of unity between us. But notice again the promise. Who will the Spirit unite together? Verse 39 now. The promise is for you and your children. The speaking of the Jews. And yet the promise continues for you and your children, for all who, also for all who are far off. Yes, that's the scattered Jews. But even more significant, this is a reference to the hated Gentiles. This gospel's for them. This unity involves them. That's what Ephesians 2 says. In Christ Jesus, you who are formerly far off, you have been brought near the dividing wall, completely taken down by the blood of Christ. Community that God builds is a supernatural community, listen, that has no other explanation than the gospel. It is a community of believers whose connection is the cross, whose harmony is the spirit, whose bond is the Savior. It's not any nationality, it's not any age, it's not any social hierarchy, or color, or preference, or hobby. No. Christian, true community can only be explained by the Spirit of God uniting his people together. And yet, let's be honest, we are not we are not in ourselves drawn to that kind of community, are we? For most of us, our default community, our default group is a group of people who look a lot like us, right? Same age, same life experiences, same social status. We want to be around those people who look like us, think like us, smell like us. That's what we're drawn to. If they could just be like us, things would be great, but that's not the Titus II discipleship model, is it? It's the older and the younger together. It's the slaves and the masters together. This so what Mark Dever and Jamie Dunlop have written. So good. It's the question, have you built your community around the gospel and some other bonds? Or does it only hold together because of the supernatural power of Almighty God? It's such an important question. If your Christian community is not dependent on God's supernatural spirit for its lifeblood, if it's based upon temporal similarities, it is not evidently supernatural. It can be explained in earthly ways. If it is not evidently supernatural, it is counterfeit community. Sure, it's posing as biblical community, but fails to accomplish its purpose. And then this last line, so key, we need people who are different from us to keep us faithful to the gospel. I'll repeat it. We need people who are different from us to keep us faithful to the gospel. That's the kind of community where discipleship flourishes. It's a community that finds its unity primarily in the gospel of Jesus. So let's ask, let's ask some questions then. Is this what our discipleship communities look like? Is this the kind of community you are actively a part of? Again, we need people who are different from us to keep us faithful to the gospel. That's the first feature, discipleship community. Second, second feature that we see here. Feature number two, a discipleship community is devoted to God's word. Discipleship community not only is united through the spirit, but it is also grounded upon the scriptures. It's what we see in verse 42 Verse 42, they, those who were being added to the church, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Continually devoting, it points to persistence. The apostles' teaching points to the community's foundation, its authority. A Christian discipleship community is like no other group in this world because it is a scripture-focused community. And it's scripture-focused because the scriptures are the means the Spirit uses to change our heart and to transform our mind, to enlighten our eyes and to inform our actions. This is the kind of community that loves the word and reads the word, and meditates on the word. But then let me add this, again, so key for discipleship community, it is also a group that applies the word. But now let me take it one step further. It is also a community that holds one another accountable to walk in obedience to the word. A group that comes under the word's authority over every part of life. Here's the statistic today. 9%, nine out of 100 professing Christians read the Bible every day. Nine, nine out of 100. 32% of professing Christians read the Bible once per week. And that's probably Sunday morning reading it along with the pastor. One author has described our current climate this way. He says this, Bible reading has become the religious equivalent to soundbite journalism. When people read from the Bible, they typically open it, read a brief passage without much regard for the context and consider the primary thought or feeling that the passage provides. If they are comfortable with it, they accept it. Otherwise, they deem it interesting but irrelevant to their life and then they move on. There is shockingly little interest in deepening their knowledge and application of biblical principles. Well, compare that to verse 42, where the community of God here continually devotes themselves to the apostles' teaching. Discipleship necessitates a community devoted to God's truth. And again, questions must be asked. Are you a part of this kind of community? Or are you okay with just reading the Bible by yourself alone in your room? Are you a part of this kind of group where you read the Bible together and think through its implications and apply it to one another's lives and then encourage obedience? That's the community we each need. And if you're not a part of that, you need to ask yourself, why not? Why not? Is it because you are just too busy for that kind of community? Other things going on, other priorities. Maybe it's because of fear. If I do that, I'm gonna open myself up to a group. Maybe it's because of pride. Again, gonna ask yourself, what is keeping you from being a part of a true discipleship community? Number three, number three, feature number three, a discipleship community cares deeply for one another. A discipleship community cares deeply for one another. It's amazing how this works. A discipleship community is made up of people with few similarities, probably, few similarities from a worldly perspective, From a worldly perspective, it's made up of a people who should not be joined together. But yet it is a community that cares deeply for one another. That's why this is so effective evangelistically. Look back at verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And again, we say, amen. We want to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, sound doctrine, right theology. But continue it. They're also continually devoting themselves to fellowship together. Koinonia, great word. Devotion, to share together, to partner together. This refers to a deep care that exists between these believers, a shared life between each of them. Notice what this fellowship entailed. It meant sharing in both the physical and the spiritual, physical and spiritual. Continue verse 42. A fellowship by breaking of bread. The breaking of bread. This could refer to the taking of the Lord's Supper together. Probably. I think it goes beyond that, though. I think it goes beyond that to now just sharing in that common meal. Yes, specifically remembering Christ, Lord's table, but now a common meal together where experiences are shared. They say that because of verse 46. Notice verse 46 they were breaking bread from house to house, described in the next phrase as taking their meals together with gladness. So there's a joy to be together, it's not forced. Translate gladness there, full exaltation. They're representing different walks of life, yet they're finding joy in their unity in Christ. There's a sincerity of heart, it says. Their hearts are knit together. Understand the context here. To share a meal in this context, to share a meal meant to share life. To share a meal meant to share life. This is how relationships are established and deepened. Conversations take place and guards are let down. We all know this to be true, right? That's why we became Baptists, It's for the potlucks. You share a meal, you share life. This is joyful intimacy here. This is generous kindness. There's a united devotion to each other. And notice it's continually devoting themselves to this. There's effort that's being made. Continue to the end of verse 42. They also fellowshipped, partnered together, cared for one, for one another through prayer. And the prayer here is in the plural. This is community prayer. Community prayer. This is not, I'll pray for you tomorrow. This is, I'll pray for you right now, and I will bring my brothers and sisters in Christ around so we can lift this up together. This is the spiritual fellowship you experience when you bring one another to the throne of God's grace. This is care that stops. I know we're busy, it stops and brings requests to the Lord as a group. Drop down to verse 44. This early community of believers also partnered together by sacrificially meeting one another's needs. Verse 44, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. They had all things in common. What's going on here? Well, remember the setting, the Passover pilgrims who had descended on Jerusalem, they've now stayed longer than expected. They don't have the provisions. They didn't plan for this. They didn't plan for the Holy Spirit descending and filling them. They didn't plan for this. So these Passover pilgrims, they need to be taken care of. Well, who's gonna do that? Well, it's the fellow believers who lived in that area. They now open up their homes they open up their homes for one another. And amazingly, verse 45, when more needs arose, verse 45, they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, speaking of believers, as anyone might have need. This is voluntary. This is joyful. It's not forced. So that's just crazy. Crazy. Now, the early church is doing the opposite of James 2. When a brother or sister without clothing was in need, they did not say, go in peace, be warm, be filled. No, they gave them what was necessary for their body. They held their possessions with an open hand. They valued each other's care more than their abundance. Abundance. This is the fellowship of sacrifice. And note here, they knew one another enough to know their needs. That's key, isn't it? They knew one another enough, they know their needs. And then they cared for one another enough to supply their lack. So again, the questions that we must ask, how do we match up here at EBC? How do we match up? Do we care deeply for one another in this way? Do we pursue the fellowship of intimacy and prayerfulness and sacrifice? Are we a part of that kind of discipleship community? Leads to a fourth feature of a discipleship community. Feature number four. A discipleship community encourages a bold gospel witness. The discipleship community encourages a bold gospel witness. Notice how the passage comes to an end in verse 46. These early believers were day by day continuing with one mind, here's the key phrase, in the temple. In the temple. Well, just think of the setting. The temple is the place that housed Jesus' enemies. In fact, drop down to chapter four, verse one. This is the temple whose priests and the captain of the temple guard, verse three, laid hands on Peter and John and put them in jail. That's what's going on in the temple. And yet what do we see? Here in verse 46, we see a community undeterred in its witness for Christ. They're bold for the gospel. They're encouraging one another in this. I think it goes back to John 13, 35. They'll know that you're my disciples when you have a love for one another. It's a bold testimony. And what's the result? Verse 47, the Lord was adding to their number day by day. That's community evangelism. It's powerful. This is the discipleship community we long to see here at EBC, the discipleship community we each need to be a part of. And yet as we go through this text, I trust it's convicting I know it has been for me. I think we can see that this kind of community cannot be exhausted in a one and a half hour worship service, can it? Can't be exhausted in just this once per week as we meet this morning. This is why we're kicking off our home discipleship groups this week. Each home discipleship group is meant to be this kind of discipleship community we need. It's key to cultivate discipleship here. Our prayers that those would grow, that we'd be a part of those. These home discipleship groups, they're based primarily on the gospel where men and women are devoted to the application of God's word, where we can care deeply for one another and offer a bold witness for the gospel together. This is the kind of community we each need. This is the soil where discipleship grows. Why? And again, here's the key why. Because our sanctification, our discipleship has been designed by God to be a community effort. That's the design. So I ask you as we enter into this new year with this new theme, will you recognize your need for this kind of community? More pressing though, will you be willing to be a part of this kind of discipleship community here at EBC? If you will, what steps will you take? If not, ask yourself, why not? What's taking priority? What's in your heart that's keeping you from that, from joining together with one another? This is indeed the next step in growing discipleship here at the church, it's seeing discipleship in the form of one another. We're in this together. We'll look more at this next week. Father, you have knit together this body at this moment for a reason. And we need one another We need one another greatly. So I ask that you would forgive us first. Forgive us if we have that lone Christian mentality. Forgive us, Lord, for living that Christian life isolated. Forgive us, Lord, for having different priorities than the ones that we see here in this text. And grant us, Lord, a repentance and grow our love for each other and grow our unity in Christ and your gospel. May your spirit knit us together, that we'd have that joy together, that love together, and that we'd have that gospel impact in this valley. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.